0: Our speaker tonight is a Catholic historian specializing in the classical and medieval periods. Um, he's a candidate for a doctoral degree in medieval history from St. Louis University, and in recent years has presented scholarly research on various historical topics at, pre- at prestigious regional, national, and international conferences. He has taught both history and classical languages at the undergraduate level, and he is currently a professor of history at Christendom College His alma mater. Please welcome back, Mr. Brendan McGuire.
1: All right, how's it going, guys? Good, good. Let's have another hand for Sabatino. All right, all right, yeah. So now. When we last left off in our series on the French Revolution, a little two-part series on the French Revolution, uh, we left off at a time in the 1790s when uh, the situation in France, politically speaking and socially speaking and economically speaking, is very unstable. And there are a lot of things that are up for grabs, right? And I, I think I mentioned something last time about how power in France is there for the taking during the revolution, right? Power is there for the taking because there's an enormous amount of power vested in the central government, right? As a result of decades of development and in the turmoil of the French Revolution, it's there for the taking of an ambitious man, right? Of a pragmatic man, of a man with genius, right? And it's that man that Napoleon Bonaparte proved to be. In fact, Napoleon Bonaparte's life is one of the more remarkable lives in, in the annals of human history. Uh, it, it's a great paradox for us to imagine how a man who, be, who began life in obscure circumstances as a foreigner never even learned to speak French properly, never learned how to spell, for example, uh, small in stature, unimpressive in his physical endowments, right? how this man rose to the heights of power, not only in France, but had all of Europe at his feet. Napoleon is a man who redrew the entire map of Europe during the course of his tumultuous uh, military career over the course of many years. And in fact, laid the foundations for modern Europe as we know it. And what we're going to see is one of the fundamental paradoxes of Napoleon's life is that here you have a great conqueror. Here you have a man who marched armies of hundreds of thousands of men across thousands of miles, leaving hundreds of thousands of dead in his wake. Right Here you have a man who is, as a conqueror, as a butcher, right, as a killer, could rank up there with the most notorious names of the 20th century. And yet, his name is widely revered in our society today. Why is that? Why is Napoleon reverenced? Why is he exempted from the scorn that's usually heaped upon tyrants, dictators, and mass murderers? Right? And it, it's a kind of a, a profound question. There are a lot of reasons for this, right? But fundamentally, what we're going to see is that Napoleon is the hero of the modern world. He's the hero of the modern world because it was Napoleon who was personally responsible for the spread of liberal and Enlightenment ideas across all of Europe, right? And for the entrenchment of liberal and Enlightenment ideas as the basis for governance, as the basis for law, as the basis for the place of religion in society, and as the basis for virtually all of life in Europe. All right. So, let's start. Take a look at, at Napoleon's early life here. You're going to see how unlikely this man's meteoric rise really is. Uh, Napoleon was born under the name of Napoleone di Buonaparte. Right. He was born in Corsica in 1769. All right. Now, when did Corsica become part of France? You guys know? 1768. All right. So, it's the year before Napoleon's birth. Corsica had been transferred, sovereignty over Corsica had been transferred from the Genoese to the French monarchy, right? Now, Napoleon's family, the that they were minor Italian nobility. They had emigrated uh, in the previous century from Genoa to, to Corsica, right? So there were minor nobility living there. As a result, during uh, Napoleon's childhood... Uh, his father, Carlo di Buonaparte, became a, a special envoy from Corsica, the local government in Corsica, to the royal court of King Louis XVI. Right, so you have a, you know, a young boy growing up, born the second of seven children in 1769. Uh, very minor nobility, about as low as you can go and still be nobility, let's put it that way. right? Um, <laughs> In any event, right, we might say, okay, the rise of this boy to the imperial throne of France right, and to the supreme power of Europe is something that's going to be kind of unlikely. But nevertheless, right, he was a minor noble, and therefore there were opportunities available to him at a very young age. And so, for example, in 1779, uh, young Napoleone was sent to the French city of Autun to go to a religious school and to learn how to speak and write French. All right. Now, this was a laborious process for him. It, it, Napoleon was mocked mercilessly as a child for his inability to speak French correctly. All right. It was a foreign language to him, and it never really became his best language, oddly enough. He always had a heavy accent, and he never learned how to spell. And those of you who have studied French know why. Um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, from from very early on, though, he was destined for a military career. At the age of eleven, he was uh, entered into his first military uh, academy, right, to study to become a military officer, which is what a young petty noble would do under the French monarchy in the time of Louis the Sixteenth. It was the best way to to advancement in your career was to study to become a military officer as a young petty noble, right? So he goes to study to become a military officer, and his one strength was mathematics. Right? Napoleon was a brilliant mathematician as a young boy. And if you are a brilliant mathematician, right, and you're looking for a military career in the 18th century, usually you would be destined for the navy. Right? The geometric and trigonometric problems that are associated with navigation at this point in, in the 18th century you know, were, were usually such that you wanted your naval commanders to be good mathematicians. And apparently it was Napoleon's dearest wish to become a naval commander. Right? That's what he wanted more than anything, uh, but it wasn't to be. There weren't enough slots for naval commanders, and so he was sent to artillery school instead as a boy. Now, he was, he was extremely bummed out about this. In fact, Napoleon actually uh, contemplated the prospect of emigrating to England so that he could join the Royal Navy as an officer. Right? That's how badly he wanted to be a naval officer. Right? Uh, now, when we look at this this moment where you have young boy Napoleon, right, has a, a career just kind of handed to him in the French military, and he's thinking of throwing it away to move to England on the you know the likelihood of maybe becoming a naval officer, it shows us something about Napoleon's character, right? Napoleon was a man who always wanted to get what he wanted, right, and he would do anything to get what he wanted, right? He was ambitious that way, right? However. His ambition was usually overwhelmed by his pragmatism, right? You can't understand Napoleon without understanding that, right? His ambition, although it might be the most obvious character trait, it was always tempered by pragmatism, right? And so Napoleon, being the pragmatist that he was, abandoned this idea of emigrating to England and instead decided to content himself with being a simple artillery officer. So he studied artillery... And it's interesting because it was Napoleon's use of artillery later in life that would revolutionize European warfare. So his formation is in artillery. And in 1785, at the age of 16, he received his commission as a lieutenant uh, in the service of His Majesty King Louis XVI. So now you can see this is only four years before the outbreak of revolution. And when when the revolution broke out in 1789, not only did it bring chaos to France, it brought chaos to Corsica. Corsica was only barely grafted onto the French state in the 1780s. And so when the revolution broke out in 1789, uh, young Napoleon Bonaparte sought uh, a leave of absence from the royal army. He wanted to go to Corsica and get involved in the, the tumultuous affairs that were going on in Corsica beginning in, beginning in 1789. It's funny, the, the revolution, if it brought turmoil to France, right, it brought an even more chaotic kind of three-way war to Corsica. Right? Once the revolution broke out, Corsica was riven in a war between three factions. You had uh, the royal faction, obviously, and you had the revolutionary faction. right. But then aside from those, you had what might have been the most popular faction of all in Corsica, and that was the Corsican nationalist faction. Right, the Corsican nationalist faction had a lot of sympathy among the populace, and Napoleon's family was even close with some of the leading figures in this Corsican nationalist faction. And it's funny, if you look at some of Napoleon's early correspondence, some of his early correspondence, you know, written in Italian, he's talking about how terrible it was that the French ever conquered Corsica. <laughs> Highly ironic. All right, but... But he goes and he joins in uh, this this three-way war. But it's funny, the side that he picks is interesting. He decides to throw his lot in with the revolutionaries. Napoleon became a a committed Jacobin at a very young age here. So he goes to Corsica, he casts his lot with the revolutionaries, And during the course of this leave of absence, which lasts a couple of years between 1789 and 1791 or two, not only does he get involved in these crazy events in Corsica, but he somehow convinces the French government to promote him to the rank of captain of artillery. Now, it's at this very young age, remember, uh, he's only in his very early 20s at this point, it's at this very young age that we see Napoleon's skill with propaganda, Right. Napoleon wrote his first literary work in French in seventeen ninety three It was called "Le souper de Beaucaire right the Supper at beaucaire and what it was was it was just a Jacobin pamphlet right but this radical Jacobin pamphlet was well crafted enough that it caught the attention of of all people Robespierre right? Robespierre in Paris read this pamphlet and decided that this young officer needed to be rewarded. So, what happens next is interesting. During the period of Robespierre's power in Paris, uh, there was an uprising in the French city of Toulon. You guys know where Toulon is? It's on the Mediterranean coast, right? The southeastern coast of France, right? Uh, So the the city of Toulon was a a naval port city. It was where all the the Royal Navy on the Mediterranean had been based, and so the revolutionary government maintained control of, of the naval base there but the sympathies of the residents of Toulon were always highly royalistic and Catholic, right, and deeply opposed to the atheism of the revolution, particularly under Robespierre, right? So in 1793, right after Robespierre has read Napoleon's pamphlet, Le soupe de Beaucair, uh, Robespierre hears to his alarm that the city of Toulon has risen up on behalf of the king and against the revolutionary government, right? They rise up, and who do they invite in? The, yeah, the, the English fleet in the Mediterranean, right? So the English fleet under Admiral Hood actually came into Toulon, and they came in, and they parked all their ships in there, and bang, 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 and they landed British troops there, and they garrisoned the city, and they fortified the city, and pretty soon the French were referring to Toulon as a second Gibraltar. Right? For, you know, garrisoned with British troops, fortified with walls built by the British, supplied by the British Navy. It looked like Toulon was virtually impregnable, right? And so when Robespierre, uh, you know, it becomes acquainted with this situation, he decides, what young ambitious officer am I going to send to deal with this situation, right? A young ambitious officer who has not yet had an opportunity to distinguish himself except as a writer of Jacobin propaganda, right? This young fellow... Napoléon, right? Now, by now, Napoleon Bonaparte has dropped his Italian name, right? He's replaced it with the French name that's more familiar to us. And so, Napoléon accepts the command of French forces who are besieging Toulon, right? Now, it's interesting. It's, we don't have time to get into all the details of the siege of Toulon, but it's at Toulon in 1793 that Napoleon's tactical genius was first manifest. Napoleon goes down to Toulon, and he looks at the arrangement that the French military had there with, you know, besieging this this city, And, and he looks and he says, hey, you guys don't have enough artillery, right? How many batteries of artillery do you have pointed at this thing? And they're like, one. And he goes, why? And they say, well, you know, it wasn't doing much good, so we didn't want to waste ammunition. Napoleon says, well, it wasn't doing much good because you're only using one, right? What Napoleon did was he set up multiple batteries, right? He said, he said, all right, let's try with five batteries. Let's try with 10 batteries, right? He continually expanded the artillery batteries that were surrounding Toulon and finally bombarded the city into submission, right? Uh, the, The artillery bombardment was such that the British just had to withdraw, Right? And, I mean, in every detail of the planning of the Siege of Toulon, Napoleon's genius is evident, right? We see the way he positions the cannons so that they were out of range and at angles where the British um, ship-based artillery couldn't fire at them. Uh, We see the concentration of fire on key points on the walls and fortifications of Toulon. It was a brilliant operation, right? And so Napoleon drove the British from Toulon. It was an opportunity for major distinction, right, for him. Now... There's controversy among people who look at Napoleon's life. There's controversy about the aftermath of the siege of Toulon because apparently there were, there were massacres of thousands of citizens of the city of Toulon in reprisal for the uprising. And Napoleon's biographers are always anxious to say that you know, he was wounded at the time and so he wasn't involved in the massacres. Right? Be that as it may, the massacres happened. Nevertheless, Napoleon, as a 24-year-old young man, was then promoted to Brigadier General as a reward for the Siege of Toulon, right? So, you might say, you might say nothing can get in this guy's way now, right? Nothing can get in this guy's way. He's a lieutenant when he's 16, he captures his first city when he's 24, he's a general at the age of 24, right? He's rising fast, and not only that, even aside from his undeniable talents, he has the friendship of Robespierre, who's in power but what's gonna happen when Robespierre is overthrown? This is where Napoleon Bonaparte hits his first real obstacle in his career. Robespierre is overthrown, as you well know, in July of 1794, right? In the violent events of the 9th of Thermidor, Robespierre is no more, and so guess what? Napoleon Bonaparte is out of a job. He was even placed under house arrest for a week and a half or so. They decided he was no threat, but he was unemployed. Now, they, they finally told him, look, we can give you a job here in the military. We can give you command of the armies that are fighting against the Catholic uprising in the Vendée. And Napoleon said no. Why did he say no? Not, not on principle or anything. But because he was an artillery general. And so to be given an infantry command would actually be a demotion him, an infantry colonel, should have been given command of these armies. So Napoleon, refusing to accept this insulting offer that that implies a demotion, uh, he says, no, um, I'm feeling kind of sick today. I can't do that. Sorry. And so what happens? Napoleon's name was actually stricken off the list of active generals. He was officially disgraced and expelled from the army. Now here again Napoleon contemplates leaving France. Once again, Napoleon the ambitious man Right. Napoleon, the man who will be second to none here, he actually contemplates traveling to Constantinople to take service with the sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Right? Now he thinks about that. The French at this point have had a long enough history of allying themselves with the sultan, so it's not as strange as it sounds, right? Uh, but he decides not to, right? He decides to hang around in France for a while and see what happens. And guess what happens? Another great opportunity for Napoleon. Right? There was a dramatic Royalist uprising in Paris in 1795, right? Royalist um, citizens were actually rallying in the streets of Paris. And it was looking very, very dangerous for the revolutionary government at the time, for the, for the directory, right? This was something that genuinely could have toppled them and brought about kind of a royalist revolution, right? Now, the, the Paris municipal government at the time was well aware that the man who had driven the British out of Toulon was unemployed and living in Paris. And so guess who they call out of retirement to deal with the royalist uprising? It's Napoleon. So Napoleon comes out of retirement, right? And now guess what? What's Napoleon's favorite toy to play with? You already know at this point, right? Artillery, right? Now Napoleon, just by chance, by coincidence, he had been present in Paris in 1792, and he had seen the king's Swiss guards cut up by the revolutionary soldiers. And he realized, you know what the problem there was? The king was unwilling to deploy artillery against his own people. The king had been, willing to, uh, he had been unwilling to deploy artillery against his fellow Frenchmen, right? Napoleon had no such qualms. He said, I know how to solve this. Let's get a bunch of cannons, fill them with grapeshot, and put them at one end of the street. Now, you guys know what grapeshot is, right? Grapeshot is this canister filled with metal balls, right? You fire it, it bursts, and the balls go flying. Hundreds of bullets all at once go tearing through people. You could also fill cannons with, um, with broken pieces of chain and other things like that. But aerodynamically, grape shot was the best. So Napoleon decides, as it were, a whiff of grape shot is the solution to this problem. So he lines up the cannons in the street, fires them at the royalists, drives them down that street around the corner. Wait, there's more cannon right there blows them away. They, t- you know, the ones who are still standing are now running down the alley. Hey, there's another cannon right there. Blast them. At the end of it, th- there are thousands of dead royalists lying around the streets of Paris, right? And so the royalist uprising was handled uh, very capably by Napoleon. Now, what this does is, uh, of course, it brings Napoleon out of disgrace, right? and from his position of disgrace and retirement, Napoleon has now risen to a position of sudden fame, sudden wealth, the favor of the government, the gratitude of the people. right? He's the man of the hour now after his destruction of this royalist uprising. Certainly, as far as the directory is concerned, he's saved their skins. Right? And so Napoleon is rewarded. Right? He's rewarded with a new military command. In 1796, Napoleon was given the command of French revolutionary armies who were invading Italy. right? Now, the enemy of the the French Revolutionary government in Italy at the time was, of course, the Austrians in northern Italy. And so Napoleon led these armies into northern Italy. He defeated the Austrians at every turn, destroyed Austrian army after Austrian army, drove them out of Lombardy, drove them out of Tuscany, and forced a humiliating treaty in which the Austrians handed over to the French all of northern Italy and all of the low countries virtually all of Belgium and the Netherlands was handed over to the French government. So we're seeing the beginnings of revolutionary French expansionism here being very successfully employed against the Austrians, Not only that, there was a secret clause in this treaty which said that as compensation, the Austrians could have the Republic of Venice. Now, the Republic of Venice at this point has been uh, demonstrably independent for well over a thousand years. The Republic of Venice was very proud of being the only part of Western Europe that had never been conquered by the barbarians. Right? The P- Republic of Venice had had a, a very gradual divorce from the Roman Empire. Right? So the Venetians are a very proud and fiercely independent people, but what does Napoleon do? He marches right in and conquers the Republic of Venice. Right? Unprecedented actions in Northern Italy. Now, during the course of these military campaigns, what's notable about Napoleon is his unprecedented use of, our, of tactical artillery. Right? We can't emphasize that enough. Using tactical artillery that was mobile in conjunction with infantry moves was something that no one had ever been able to do skillfully before. Napoleon did it masterfully, right? and it's why the casualty counts and all of these battles against the Austrians and others are, are just so out of whack. Right? Napoleon dominates all of these battles. Right? But you might be wondering, having driven the Austrians out of northern Italy, what is that going to bring Napoleon into direct contact with?: the papal. Exactly. It's going to bring Napoleon into direct contact with the papal States. Right? At this point, in 1796, 1797, the papal States still formed a substantial chunk of central Italy, kind of extending in a northern or northeasterly direction from the city of Rome, right? encompassing uh, the part of Italy that we call Romagna, right? Right, the part of Italy that had, for the longest time, been held by the Byzantine Empire. And then it was part of Charlemagne's empire, eventually incorporated into the papal states. Right? So this is papal territory. Right? Now Napoleon's question is, what do I do with the papal states? Right? He's getting instructions from the directory that are telling him exactly what to do with the papal states. Napoleon is getting instructions at this point from the directory that are telling him, there's only one thing that can be done with the church it has to be crushed. It has to be destroyed. It has to be eliminated. Right? If you drove the Austrians out of Italy, there's nothing stopping you from destroying the papacy. Right? The pope certainly doesn't have any armies at his command that can stand up to yours. Right? So go down to Rome, right? destroy any resistance, capture the pope, toss him off his throne, put an end to the papacy. So these are Napoleon's instructions. Now here we see something very, very interesting about Napoleon, and that is that Napoleon at all times was driven more by pragmatism than by ideology. Right? Napoleon's revolutionary ideology, right, the Jacobinism of his youth, would certainly incline him to follow these instructions that he's receiving from the directory. Right? But Napoleon was a very ambitious and capable man, as we know, and so so during his whole Italian campaign, Napoleon is corresponding with informers back in France. And what Napoleon is hearing about what's going on back in France during his Italian campaign intrigues him greatly. Napoleon is, is hearing strange things. He's hearing of a religious awakening in France. He's hearing that Catholicism is making a comeback in France. That there's a popular reaction against the official atheism of the directory. Right? So what Napoleon decides to do is what's in the best interests of his own political ambitions in France, and that is he decides to leave the papacy intact. Right? It doesn't mean that he doesn't throw his weight around, though. In fact, Napoleon does march down to Rome. He meets Pius VI. He has you know, very polite conversations with Pius VI. But Aside from that, he also does arrest some important prelates, important high-ranking clerics. Right? He also confiscates all of the northern lands of the papal states. Virtually everything except Rome itself is confiscated, and the papacy is left just with Rome. Right? Now, what he's doing here, what, he, what Napoleon himself said that he was doing, was he wanted to deprive the papacy of its revenue so that, so that it could collapse on its own. Right? And here you see the pragmatism of Napoleon tempering his ideology. Right? Obviously he, he's not a man who's sympathetic with the papacy, but for his own political ambitions he does not want to be seen as the destroyer of the papacy, even if he actually is the destroyer of the papacy. Right? So he refuses to do it directly, instead he decides it's okay to destroy the papacy, Indirectly, right? And in his correspondence, he expresses this hope very firmly that the papacy would collapse. Right? Something else interesting we see during his Italian campaign here in 1796 and 97, and that is we see the beginnings of Napoleon's propaganda machine, right? Uh, a lot of times people ask, how can somebody rise to power? How do you do that, right? This whole thing of rising to power, how is that done? Uh, you know, we, we ask ourselves throughout history: How does Julius Caesar rise to power? How does Hitler rise to power? Or anyone else, for that matter. The guy like Napoleon: How does he rise to power? Right? And one important aspect of it is always propaganda. Right? Propaganda is huge for Napoleon uh, during his Italian campaign. Napoleon was responsible for the creation of not one, not two, but three newspapers all of which were devoted to talking about Napoleon's exploits and how wonderful they were. Right? Here we, we see definite echoes of Caesar on the Gallic Wars, right? where he's not just making war, he's also making propaganda for back home. Right? And so while he's away, he becomes the most popular figure back home. That's exactly what Napoleon does. While Napoleon is in Italy, not only does he have two newspapers that are just for the army, right? supposedly just for the army, which also get wide circulation elsewhere, He also has his own personal newspaper, Le Journal de Bonaparte et des Hommes Vertueux, which is published in Paris, under his direction from afar. It's published in Paris, and all it can talk about is the the wonders of Napoleon's conquests and and his successes and how the glory of France is being upheld by Napoleon while the directory back home is going bankrupt and really stinking things up. So when Napoleon comes back to Paris in 1797, He is the most popular Frenchman alive, right? This is the key moment in Napoleon's rise to power, is his return to Paris after the Italian campaign, even more so than his coup, which will come a couple years later, his return to Paris in 1797, right? Because the directory realizes that they're in trouble at this point. The directory realizes, we don't know what we're going to do, right? Because this guy Napoleon is so popular, he's so much more popular than we are. If he wanted to stage a coup, he certainly could. Right. So the directors were very alarmed when they received a, a sort of a sealed proposition from Napoleon one day in 1798. Right? And they opened it up, and suddenly their faces glowed with relief, because what it was was Napoleon's proposal that he be sent on another military campaign far, far away. The directors were very happy to oblige, right? They were very happy to do anything to get him out of Paris. But it's interesting, where does Napoleon want to go in 1798? Egypt. Yeah, he wants to go to Egypt. Now, here's our question. If he he wants to go to Egypt, who's the ultimate target? Who's the strategic enemy here that Napoleon is moving against by going to Egypt? Everyone who said the British is right. Yeah, he's moving against the British, right? Now, why would you go to Egypt to move against the British? Isn't that the wrong direction, right? Isn't England the other way? Yeah, Napoleon, in fact, at this point, knew that there was a French invasion fleet on the English Channel, ready to go. You can see it from here, right Right there, right across, invade England, right? But Napoleon knew darn well, just as all the French did, that there was absolutely no way that the French could handle the British Navy at this point. No way they could handle the British Navy on the English Channel or in home waters around England and France, no way, right? So that wasn't an option. But if we go to Egypt, right? There, there, are the interesting possibilities emerge, right? Napoleon realized if he could conquer Egypt, he could then make connections, right, in the Indian Ocean with Muslim princes in Pakistan and India, with whom he could then act in concert against British possessions in India. That was the grand plan to move through Egypt towards India and strike the British there. Right? So, of course, the directors receive this plan very well. They say, oh, Will it take you far away? Oh, yes, yes. Will it be for a long time? Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right. And so Napoleon sails with the French Navy, miracu- miraculously evades the British Navy, somehow gets around them on the Mediterranean, and makes it all the way to Alexandria, where he lands with a French army. Right? And on the way, he conquered Malta, which really stinks, because it was held by the last crusading order at right, the Knights Hospitaller. So Napoleon grabs that on his way to Egypt. Right, So he gets to Egypt and of course in July of 1798, he brings not only an army to Egypt, he also brought an army of scientists. Did you know that? Uh, he brought over a hundred scientists with him to Egypt. These were the guys who found the Rosetta Stone. You guys know that? It was on Napoleon's military expedition to Egypt. Right? So he brings these armies to Egypt. They defeat the Mamluk army decisively in July of 1798. But while Napoleon is there in Egypt, and his French fleet is kind of docked in this harbor in the Nile, the English navy comes and destroys it. Right? Admiral Horatio Nelson came in there and, and destroyed the French navy at the famous Battle of the Nile here. So then Napoleon is there with his army, right, supreme on land, but the French Mediterranean fleet was destroyed. Right? So naval control of the Mediterranean falls into British hands at this point. But Napoleon is not done. He's not deterred by this. So what does he do? After consolidating his position in Egypt... All right, and, and kind of in, in some theoretical sense, incorporating Egypt into the French Republic, Napoleon then moves against the Ottoman Empire by invading Ottoman, Palestine and Syria. Right? And there are horror stories about the battles fought by Napoleon against the Ottomans. Napoleon's savagery here was notorious. Uh, there were, uh, for example, at, at the Battle of Jaffa, Napoleon he captured the city of Jaffa, and he found that many of the soldiers defending Jaffa were former uh, prisoners of war, Ottoman soldiers, who had at one time or another been prisoners of war of the French and were therefore theoretically on parole. What does that mean? They had theoretically given their word not to fight. So what Napoleon did then when he found this out was he took the entire Ottoman garrison of Jaffa and he had them all executed, right? But he had them all executed by very particular means that wouldn't waste bullets, right? So they would use either bayonets or drowning, right? favored means of execution. Don't waste bullets, right? Uh, in any event, Napoleon's army was weakened heavily by disease all right, during his passage uh, through Palestine and Syria. So he's, while he's retreating back to Egypt, now we see more of his pragmatism. Napoleon, the pragmatist, decided, look, I have so many men who are weak with disease that they're slowing down our retreat back towards Egypt. So everyone who's sick, sorry guys, you get poisoned, and then we're going to leave you here. <laughs> So he poisoned all of his own sick soldiers right, and then made his way back to Egypt. Right? Now, here, here is the decisive moment of Napoleon Bonaparte's career. By this point, the directory back in Paris is thoroughly unpopular, bankrupt. They've even suffered some military setbacks on the continent, right? while Napoleon, on the other hand, has covered himself in glory, covered himself in honor right, as the great hero of France in these foreign wars. Right? So Napoleon decided in 1799 that the time had come to return, right? So he returned to Paris by himself in 1799, leaving his army in Egypt, right? He went back to the capital, and when he got there, he made plans for his coup, right? And so it was on the 9th of November, 1799, that Napoleon and his friends gathered troops in Paris, dispersed the legislature, had a rump legislative session, which nominated Napoleon Bonaparte first consul of the French Republic. Now, as first consul of the French Republic, this is a euphemism. What is he? He's the dictator of France at this point. All political power is in his hands. All of France now belongs to Napoleon. Now, that's where we're going to end for this session. I'll take questions after the break, and we'll talk about the rest of his career next time. Thanks.
0: All right, we're going to take our, uh, our usual um, three-minute break. Um, Mr. McGuire here told me just before he got up here that he was questioning whether he uh, may have appendicitis. I didn't want to announce that before the talk, but, uh, but what a way to, to be able to deliver a talk. There's a natural, natural teacher, huh, if you can deliver a talk with appendicitis. So anyways, we're going to take three minutes, see if he falls over, and, uh, and then we'll have a quick five-minute Q&A and let him get on his way to his wife and home in case he needs to end up at the hospital. So, All right, so stand up, take a quick break, and uh, have some refreshments. We're going to do our usual uh, rules apply. Five minutes for Q&A. Five questions max. If you have a question, make sure it's one sentence and has a question mark on the end. There you
1: go. All right, there we go. First one right here. What was the attitude
0: of the, of the people in Egypt toward those scientists, which we today call nation builders?
1: The attitude towards the scientists was... the and the strange people tell about the virtues of Right. I think their attitude towards the scientists would have been primarily one of indifference. Uh, their attitude towards the soldiers though would have been quite another thing. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the, um, the scientists like the ones that Napoleon brought to Egypt would have been really speculative in their ambitions. They wanted to learn about history and archaeology and things like that. There were other types of scientists that Napoleon becomes very enamored of later, um, more practical scientists and these are the scientists that become a pain in the neck for a lot of Europeans because they invent things like the metric system and then they impose it on everyone and things like that. It, it, it's kind of popularly resented in many places until until people get used to it. It always takes time to get used to it. but. Uh, it's an interesting... interesting. Okay, the, the question is uh, about Napoleon's mother and her uh, Catholicism. Napoleon's mother was Maria Letizia Barolino, and uh, she was considered very devout in her time. I never heard that she was acquainted with Anna Maria Taigi, though, which was the other part of the question, uh, so I can't speak to that. But her... Uh, her principal attribute, uh, the way it's, re- and, and all these histories are somewhat hagi- hagiographical, you know, but uh, supposedly it, it was the strength of of her personality, uh, the the mother, that um, kind of gave Napoleon his upbringing because it took a very strong woman to deal with this rambunctious kid. And, uh, but, and you know, her piety was was genuine, uh, but the relationship with Anna Maria Taiiji I'm not sure about. That's a good question. Uh, the question is about a, a witty repartee involving Napoleon and uh, one of Pope Pius VII's um, secretaries. And Napoleon threatened to destroy the Catholic Church. The cardinal secretary responded, "Good luck. We've been trying for 1,800 years, and it hasn't worked," um, or something along those lines. And uh, yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I, I don't doubt that it's an apocryphal conversation. People never think on the fly that quickly, uh, you know. <laughs> it's, at least I don't. Maybe back then they were a little sharper. I I don't know. I uh, yeah. The, the, but the the context that you're thinking of there is from later on, around 1809 or so, and and we'll talk about that next time. Napoleon's relations with the Vatican really head south in the next decade. The question is, what did the French people think of Napoleon poisoning his own soldiers on the way back to Egypt? And the answer is, Napoleon controlled all of his own propaganda. So yeah the soldiers themselves knew, but the i mean it 's one of those things napoleon's as far as popular opinion and public opinion goes uh and and you know eighteenth and nineteenth centuries really are the first time in Western history where public opinion is this thing uh that matters um, but no public opinion was was manipulated and controlled very carefully very successfully by Napoleon himself and and some of his friends who ran his propaganda machine in Paris. As far as the soldiers themselves were concerned, it's hard to say, uh, except to say that their opinions really didn't matter that much. Um, so undoubtedly, uh, undoubtedly there were some who were upset, but it really didn't matter at the end of the day. Okay, the, the question has to do with Napoleon's complicity in the official atheism of the directorate, right? The directorate in the French Revolution is notorious for abolishing the traditional calendar, replacing the seven-day week with a ten-day week, uh, replacing the years with, a, you know, year one in 1792, and, you know, year two in 1793, and that sort of thing, just to abolish any trace of the past, to abolish any trace of Catholicism, any trace of the old regime, anything, even like today is Sunday, even anything like that that connects you with the past was abolished by the directorate. And the answer is that that stuff actually really kind of predates Napoleon, uh, or it predates Napoleon's rise to power. And in fact, Napoleon, while in power, judged it to be the pragmatic thing to do to reverse those moves that the directorate had made. So Napoleon in fact abolishes uh, the silly years that they use and and uh, and, and all you know the ten day week and all that stuff. He makes a concordat with the church in eighteen oh one and you have to know when Sundays and, and things like that. So uh, in fact Napoleon was much more of a pragmatist, whereas the Directorate were thoroughgoing ideologues and, and idealists, if that makes any sense. So all right, that's that. Thanks, guys. Thank you.